Hello, and thank you for joining us on We Are Rivers, a podcast where we tell stories and talk issues about the rivers that connect us. I'm Paige Bono, your host. Today, we're talking with Amy McCoy about a recently released report titled 10 Strategies for Climate Resilience in the Colorado Basin. The strategies that the report outlines are big, and they range from forest management and restoration to regenerative agriculture, from natural distributed storage to coal plant retirement water. Amy authored the report along with her partner, Susan Martin, and Culp and Kelly. But as you'll hear in the conversation, it was a collaborative effort that brought together a lot of really great minds. In our conversation, we start with some backstory about Amy and her history with rivers. We talk about climate change in the basin, and we get into the impetus for this report. Then we dive into the weeds on the details of how the report came together, the research that went into it, and we finally get to the strategies themselves. If you're just here for that sort of top 10 takeaway, I'm jumping to about minute 14. We'll get you there. Perfect. Great. Well, I think we'll get rolling um, and just start with saying hi, Amy, and thanks so much for being on the We Are Rivers podcast with me today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, We're talking today about a recent report that you all released that outlines sort of the top 10 strategies for climate resilience in the Colorado River Basin. And um, before we dive into the report, I would love to hear just a little bit about you, who you are, um, and your background, and then we'll get into sort of the impetus for this thing. Sure. So I uh, work with the organization Martin and McCoy, my business partner, Susan Martin, and we started our firm about two and a half years ago to focus on innovative, exciting, creative strategies to uh, addressing water challenges and climate change challenges in the Western United States. So I grew up in Colorado and have a deep connection to mountains and to rivers. Uh, Spent my early part of my career uh, as an athlete actually on rivers and really got to see firsthand around the world, the level of pollution in rivers and people's deep and spiritual connection to water. I was so inspired by that, that I decided I wanted to make a career out of it. So went back to school, um, got a, a advanced degree in riparian ecology and water policy, and then started consulting because I love the opportunity to really engage creatively in ideas and spin up new concepts and and new ideas with people in a variety of different sectors. So I've been consulting now for about close to 15 years. And that's what essentially led to this, uh, one of the things that led to this uh, report. I asked Amy to stop here and tell me more about just what kind of athlete she was that allowed her to travel around the world and spend time on rivers. I was a rower. Um, and so I rode all over the world, um, in all sorts of different places and, uh, raced on super fun sites here in the United States, raced on pristine mountain lakes. I raced on dammed rivers that had timed releases in Europe and, 
uh, I had no idea how managed rivers were really, or how impacted they were. I only knew the emotional connection to it. So that's what really opened my eyes. What a way to experience rivers around the world. Um, thanks for sharing that bit of your background, Mimi. Thanks for asking. And I guess we'll, we'll shift into the report. And before we talk specifics, I would love just the sort of the big picture overview. Who was involved in this thing? So this effort was really an exciting and collaborative effort. And the seeds for this idea for the report were planted decades ago. And I really want to acknowledge that there have been innovators and creative thinkers for years who have been taking risks on uh, adjusting and adapting to the changing landscape. And our thinking for this report and the authors of this report really stand on the shoulders of those forward thinking risk takers in uh, land management, landowners, working landscapes, uh, cities and communities, people have been taking risks and putting forward ideas that were the seeds of this idea, of the seeds of this report. Uh, the report was authored by Martin McCoy and Culpin Kelly on behalf of a group of nonprofit organizations that include American Rivers, Environmental Defense Fund, National Audubon Society, the Nature Conservancy, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Trout Unlimited, and the Western Resource Advocates. We all came together to begin to put together the ideas uh, for these 10 strategies. And when I say we, I really mean the co-authors of the report and these organizations. It was an incredible creative brain trust that contributed to this report. And I just want to acknowledge how many minds have gone into this. Well, and so, it, you know, it sounds like you've been consulting for close to 15 years or over 15 years. And um, what was sort of the impetus for this specific report? And uh, before you dive into that, maybe you can just kind of tell us, tell us a little bit about the report. So this report uh, is called 10 Strategies for Climate Resilience in the Colorado River Basin. And the intent of the report was to broadly outline the risk of climate change to water supplies in particular in the Colorado River Basin, and then pose a integrated and potentially coordinated series of actions that could be taken by many different uh, sectors and communities in the basin to address the risk of climate change. Um, we thought of this report early on because we recognized the severity of the climate risk to the Colorado River Basin and the severity of risk to water supplies and water management, which has been pr the predominant aspect of our work or predominant load of our work. But we recognize that often water management is approached from a supply and demand perspective. So how do you manage the supplies and how do you lessen or, or spread out the demands to match those supplies? The largest risk posed to supplies and to demand is climate change. And so we wanted to take a step back and link water management with climate responses. We also recognized in the severity of, of climate risk that it's easy to feel despair, that it's easy to feel like this is out of our control, that we just are sitting here passive observers 
to the world changing around us. And, and we wanted to provide an opportunity for people to come together, to have conversations, to take proactive um, actions to adapt to, mitigate, and respond to the threats of climate change. So this is a bit of a, a hopeful response to an ultimately wildly challenging uh, reality that we face in climate change. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, we don't have to go too much in the weeds, but um, what does climate change in the Colorado River Basin look like? What are the things that these investment strategies have to respond to? So climate change in the Colorado River Basin, as Brad Udall has said on an earlier podcast in this series, climate change can really be seen through water change and water change is climate change. So as you watch river flows change, as you watch precipitation change, um, as you watch groundwater levels and use change, those are all in response to climate change. And the dominant dynamic of climate change in the Colorado River Basin is uh, a term called aridification, which again, Brad Budal talks about eloquently. Aridification is the notion of um, temperature-induced uh, flow loss along rivers throughout the river basin. The temperature-induced flow loss precipitates a lot of other changes as well, including low soil moisture, higher fire risk. Uh, we've seen some of the largest fires in in Colorado state history, just this past year, the three largest fires occurred in one summer. That same summer, 2020 in Arizona, we had the notorious non-soon. It rained virtually not at all in Arizona. And there were searing days over 110, setting new records for, for heat record, for sustained heat uh, that summer. These 10 strategies, acknowledge the impacts of those changes, acknowledge the impact of lower soil moisture, of higher fire risk, of reduced water supplies, and propose a series of actions that can adapt to those changes, that can mitigate um, some of the climate impacts, and increase the overall resilience of communities and economies in the basin, which is to say, uh, plan for the least amount of damage to human and natural systems and take actions towards the greatest amount of ability to respond to those changes as well. And I want us to get into and talk specifically about the strategies that rose to the top, but I'd love to spend just a minute talking about your process of kind of filtering these strategies, maybe coming up with them, but then also, um, yeah, how how did we arrive at a top 10 and, and the ranking within that? And by we, I mean you, I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is the we. In the, in the broadest sense, it's the we. These are strategies that communities throughout the basin have tried, have thought about, have uh, envisioned. This is a this is a we in the greatest sense possible. And the way that, that we arrived at these 10 strategies was by talking to many of the uh, environmental nonprofits working actively in the Colorado River Basin right now with whom we, we worked on this report. Uh, the experts in those nonprofits provided a tremendous amount of information for this report. 
So we spoke with those organizations and those experts and scientists and asked essentially, what are the various different strategies that could be taken to, that could be taken in the near term to begin to help address and respond to climate change? We came up with a large list, then went through, sort of sorted the list, found out which ones were sort of overlapping or connected, and then essentially distilled them down to these final 10 based on overall experience uh, implementing these, interest and capacity to implement these, and the potential essentially to support these initiatives through funding, through policies, through on the ground actions, and through research. We consider these 10 strategies to be relevant, to be actionable and to be realistic. And I know, you know, in the report that you sort of outlined four main questions um, that you asked maybe of each of the strategies to sort of um, help identify where they, where they exist, or maybe you can actually tell me what those questions helped do. Um, but can you talk a little bit about those four assessment questions? These four assessment questions helped us sort the strategies as well as do research on the strategies. Our four questions were first, could the investment strategy help the basin adapt to ongoing climate change shifts? Uh, Adaptation is really a risk management process that includes identifying vulnerabilities, that includes planning, implementation and monitoring results and Adaptation can occur in multiple sectors, including municipal sectors, agricultural operations, tribal lands, and forests and watersheds. Adaptation is comprehensive and it's basin-wide. So we wanted to understand how the investment strategy could really help adapt to ongoing climate change. The second question is, to what extent would the investment strategy reduce pressure on existing water supplies? This question really focused on acknowledging the traditional water management perspective of managing water supply and demand and acknowledges that water supply is an acute challenge going forward under climate change. So to what extent could this strategy reduce uh, pressure on water supplies? The third question is, would the investment strategy help mitigate climate change? So this acknowledges that while mitigation is often a conversation at the global level, to reduce global scale greenhouse emissions, that it's also possible to take a a localized look at reducing regional or local contributions to carbon emissions. So this is a a very site-specific, geographic uh, specific perspective on the degree to which any of these strategies could help mitigate climate change. The fourth question is, Could the investment strategy strengthen economic resilience in communities? This is really about bolstering sustainability and profitability of economic sectors and creating new jobs or businesses that are linked to restoration or infrastructure improvements. This links essentially the threat of climate change and risk of climate change to the economies and well-being of the basin. And I guess, you know, without sort of um, 
further ado, we should probably talk about what the strategies, these top 10 strategies are, and I'll leave it to you for how you want to list those. I, you know, they are kind of ranked in the report in terms of how they're presented. And I don't know if you want to talk about them in that order. Um, I'll leave it to you. Sure. I will first just list them uh, as we've listed them in the report, starting with forest management and restoration prioritizing forest management and restoration as a way to maintain system functionality and biodiversity. Uh, that's a very comprehensive strategy. And so we listed that first. So forest management and restoration, natural distributed storage, which is uh, taking actions to restore degraded natural meadow systems as a way of, of retaining um, and water, as well as uh, recharging local, local aquifers. The third is regenerative agriculture, which is uh, promoting farming and ranching principles and practices that enrich soils and enhance biodiversity, as well as restore watershed health. Again, a very holistic view of the future of potential future of, of agriculture. The fourth is upgrading agricultural infrastructure and operations. This is in the vein of reducing water uh, pressure on water supplies and increasing water efficiency for agricultural operations. The fifth uh, are cropping alternatives and new market pathways. This takes the perspective of looking at different cropping options for farmers throughout the basin, as well as um, exploring various different market and supply interventions that may incentivize water conservation, incentivize different cropping patterns, help bolster the economy of agricultural communities. The sixth is urban conservation and reuse. And the seventh is industrial conservation and reuse. These are fairly well-practiced uh, strategies in the basin. Certainly we've looked at urban conservation and, and industrial conservation ways to make these um, places and, and industries much more efficient reducing, again, pressure on water supplies. The eighth is coal plant retirement water. Uh, as coal plants begin to retire, there's a big question about what will happen with the water that they've previously used. This uh, coal plant retirement is really under uh, the auspices of mitigating climate change, reducing emissions. Then the, the ninth is reducing dust on snow which is improving land management practices to reduce the dust on snow effect. Uh, dust on snow changes the pattern and pace of runoff and snow melt. So uh, the more that we can address land management practices to mitigate or reduce dust, the more we can help with this uh, problem. And the, and the final 10th strategy is covering reservoirs and canals in an effort to reduce evaporation and reduce pressure on water supplies. And you talked, you know, that's obviously, it's a massive and really comprehensive list when we think about what all goes into um, just each one of those things. And I, you know, in the report, there's a really great graphic that kind of places them, these strategies on a spectrum of experienced um, emerging theoretical. And I, I noticed a lot of them are in sort of that emerging and theoretical realm and you can you talk just about like what does it mean and why um, invest in those kind of strategies now what yeah what's it going to take 
it's going to take boldness and action and creativity and a willingness to try things and to learn as we're implementing. I think one thing that we're certainly realizing as a result of just the summer of 2020 and now the summer of 2021, where we're seeing such high temperatures in parts of the country and huge amounts of flooding, that there's really no time to waste. And at this point, it's really helpful to do research to support ideas and creativity. And it's also essential to act. So we noticed, and as you noticed, there are a lot of strategies clustered around this sort of emerging piece, which is to say we have some research and we have some action. And let's boldly go forward and begin to implement these and spark conversations about how we can learn from what we've been doing and how we can change in the future and how we can start to essentially create action that is commensurate to the level of risk that we face. And and I don't know if the dollar amount is sort of where we're going with this, but you know, what's the scale of investment that that's called for maybe across the 10 strategies? That's a great question. Uh, I would be hesitant to put a dollar figure on it, but I think actively talking about that is really important. And we have three next steps that we pose in this report the, that begins to get at that cost and uh, financially as well as uh, from a, a human capacity point of view. And the three next steps, the first one is to really explore and take action towards demonstration projects and in these strategic investments. So we are eager to identify uh, and implement demonstration projects and shovel-ready investments that generate value and benefits right away. Uh, just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we can't act now. Uh, the second uh, next step is financing, to get at your question, Paige. So does not we feel that it's really important to design a financing strategy for a diversified and, and coordinated project portfolio that supports the implementation and monitoring of these on-the-ground projects within each of the strategies. So this is a, a type of nested financing strategy where we're exploring the financing that would be necessary for each strategy and then rolling that up to the whole portfolio of actions. And then the third is, is research, is pairing on a parallel path on the ground actions with research, action-oriented research that monitors and tracks these pilot projects to explore outcomes, to be able to articulate and name these outcomes, and then create a feedback loop where we're actively learning. And adapting. <laughs> and adapting. <laughs> exactly the, the whole beginning. point of the report. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, who is this report for? That's a great question. I mean, really, it's, it's for everybody. Um, we, when we wrote this, we had in mind policymakers who may wish to understand or, or talk about or explore a diversified portfolio of actions that they could take in their regions that would be a step towards adapting to and mitigating climate change. We envisioned uh, 
on the ground practitioners who themselves involved in these strategies and are uh, have a lot to share in terms of their lessons learned and could potentially share that in a in a diversified group of people who are talking about benefits and, and actions that could be taken in a variety of different places at a variety of different scales. We envisioned uh, the media as a way to essentially talk about climate change in a proactive way. Uh, again, Brad Udall on, in his podcast earlier in this series said that you, you really can't depress people into action. Uh, I loved that phrase. You, you can't depress people into action. Really, you can inspire people into action. And, and inspiration comes from knowledge. It comes from language. It comes from connecting with one another. And so we hoped that this report would provide some of that inspiration and, and some of that knowledge in a way that is action-oriented and hopeful. You just started to touch on something else that I really picked up in, in the report is that um, these strategies are not something people can do in silos. It seems like collaboration is sort of definitely one of the underpinning themes. Um, does that ring true? And, and sort of what does that say for you? Definitely. And in a sense, this report is actually in direct response to climate change itself. Um, climate change is not one thing. I mean, the, the dynamic of climate change, the science of climate change is understood, but the, the way that it manifests itself on the landscape and in people's lives is multifaceted. As I mentioned earlier, it, it manifests in soil moisture, it manifests in, in extreme precipitation swings, extreme temperature swings, um, flooding and drought. And in that sense, the, the full story of climate change is the intersection of multiple action, multiple uh, impacts. We wrote a report that in some ways um, responds to that. This report is uh, 10 actions that intersect, that interact, that complement and compound each other. And that, uh, from our perspective, the notion of complexity and intersection is part of how we talk about climate change. And it is definitely part of how we talk about responding to it. Well, Amy, I think, you know, I guess the sort of the last question I have for you, and then I want to leave some time for anything we didn't cover, but um, you live and breathe this stuff and have been for a long time. And I'm curious in writing this report, if anything surprised you, um, if there was anything that felt like it kind of reframed your thinking or, um, or spurred new questions. The thing that, that really startled me about writing this, and I do live and breathe it, is how quickly change is occurring. And I expected to feel a little despondent by that. On the contrary, I felt really spurred to action writing this report. Like, goodness, change is happening. It's happening fast. It, in some instances, might be happening faster than we're even recording it. Our only response to this is to act. And I think in that sense, I also was surprised that my response emotionally was one of motivation and one of feeling uh, emboldened to take action. And if, if we are taking action with the express pur purpose of learning from it, it makes it easier because there really is no right way here. 
We are learning as we go because we're watching climate change unfold in unexpected ways. And there is no prescription here. Um, our prescriptive action is entirely up to the extent of our own creativity and willingness to come together and, and take bold action. I think that that's a, an inspiration and a motivation for others to dive in um, and imagine the ways that this report can apply to their work and the ways that, to your point, that they can contribute to it. What information can people help? Um, what experiences can people contribute to further inform you know, the implementation of these strategies? Um, what did we miss, Amy? Was there anything we didn't talk about that is important for people kind of getting a, a broad overview of the report? I think that I may just touch on, on four things that came to our mind as, as to why this report is relevant right now and why we're hoping that it really will spark a lot of conversation and a lot of new ideas. Um, and the first is really that, that the nation is, is poised to take action right now. Uh, Congress, the federal administration, some of the basin states are focused on bolstering climate mitigation and climate resilience. And we feel like the time is now to be talking about climate resilience, to be talking about the ways in which we can act, to lessen the impact of climate change and to slow climate change. Um, the second is that the basin states, tribes, and most water providers are uh, acknowledging the risks associated with climate change and are really beginning to look for ways to address those risks. So it feels like an exciting time for creativity and conversation. The third is that over the next few years, the operational guidelines for the Colorado River will be renegotiated and the effects of climate change will be central to that negotiation. While we acknowledge that the guidelines negotiations are not necessarily the forum for structuring the strategy for these investments, it is a process that brings into clear focus the challenges facing the basin. And it may really serve to motivate a more coordinated approach to resilience. And then the fourth point uh, that I have already touched on, which is that there is no time to waste. Change is happening and it's happening quickly. And many of these resilience strategies will take time as we're learning as we're doing. And so the time to begin is right now. And that feels exciting. It feels motivating. And again, if the point is to implement and learn, then we really have nothing to lose. Well, Amy, before I let you go, I, you know, where can people go to learn more? Yes, thank you. So we have a website where um, we have presented the full report, a two short summaries and the technical appendix, which is the research that backs this report. The research was extensive and there is a very extensive uh, citation list associated with the technical appendix that we would invite people to, to dive into. 
You can find all of those materials at our website, which is www.10strategies.net. Uh, 10 strategies, spell out the number 10, um, but it's 10strategies.net. And you can find all of the materials as well as the contributing organizations and contacts of those organizations as well. So we would invite you to go to that webpage. Perfect. We'll, uh, we'll throw it in the show notes too. So people have easy access. Great. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much again, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of We Are Rivers. The link with the full report that Amy mentioned is in the show notes, and we hope you'll check it out. There's so much to ponder there and hopefully take inspiration from. This podcast is produced by Paige Buono and Faye Hartman, and we are two humans who greatly appreciate your feedback. Please rate and comment, send this to your friends, let us know what you think, and keep tuning in. Till next time.